This is a podcast brought to you by Tourism Geographies, an international journal of tourism, space, place, and environment published by Taylor and Francis. In 2022, Tourism Geographies was ranked second in Scopus Site Score Tracker in the subject areas Tourism, Leisure, and Hospitality Management, and secondly in Geography, Planning, and Development. In 2023, it's on track to be number one with a site score of 24.4 as at the 5th of August 2023. Welcome to another episode of Tourism Geographies podcast. We have joining us today Stephanie Benjamin. So Stephanie Benjamin is an associate professor with the University of Tennessee. Her key research lies in the nexus of social equity and critical tourism scholarship exploring marginalized populations, live experiences, and counter-narratives. She also serves as the co-director with Tourism Reset. Welcome, Stephanie. How are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. I am awake and caffeinated at the moment. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. So to start, I just want to get a good insight on one, uh, your research interests currently, also some of your work um, beyond tourism geographies, just holistically on tourism reset. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you you gave a, a great introduction for me in the beginning uh, with tourism reset. We are a group of scholars and practitioners who are working, whether through research and collaborating with practitioners to create more equitable landscapes for travelers of difference. Uh, Tourism Reset stands for Race, Ethnicity, Social Equity, and Tourism, and was founded by Drs. Derek Alderman and Carol Klein. And within the past couple of years, Dr. Elena Dilette, who's one of my very close friends and colleagues, She and I were fortunate enough to take over uh, as co-directors for Tourism Reset. So we've been trying to bring in some new blood with it, um, working with groups like the Black Travel Alliance and Martinique Lewis and Nomadist Travel Tribe with Avita Robinson. And it's just, it's been a labor of love, but we really are fortunate to have such really wonderful folks who are willing to collaborate with us as scholars who are literally across the world. That's lovely. And you recently actually covered some of that uh, research with both Alana as well as industry Evita Robinson. Do you want to share a bit of the key takeaways from your article, Black Travel is Not a Monolith? Sure. Yeah, this work, it was really cool because we were able to collaborate with Avita Robinson. And this work is has been going on for, for a couple of years now. And really what Alana and Avita and I have been trying to explore or, or share is that Black travel is not monolithic, meaning that there are many intersecting identities uh, that either interfere or uh, work against or potentially toward folks of color when tra- while traveling. And intersectionality is, is nothing new, it was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw um, and under the umbrella of critical race theory. And so with this, we um, have really worked with, again within the past couple of years uh, to, to really highlight and amplify that black travel is, is complex. Um, there, 
Black travelers are not a one dimension community. And for myself, I am white and I'm uh, not a person of color, but collaborating with both Evie and Alana and the Nomadness tribe, it's been really exceptional to amplify and highlight all of these conversations and dialogue that we've had with um, specific tribe members. So uh, we were able to collaborate with folks within the industry and, um, you know, these participants were selected to use more of a purposeful sample. Um, and this was based off of the larger survey that we collaborated with Evie on to explore uh, more more so her tribe, um, but also the the it was you know the folks beyond the tribe as well um, to better understand what it's like to travel as a um, a black traveler or a traveler of color, but also again those intersecting identities, and we were able to really highlight that yeah it's it's not a monolith you know being mm. a black woman and traveling is very different than being a or a black cisgender woman while traveling is very different than being a black man or a cisgender man while traveling. Mm -hmm. um, and so highlighting the safety components with that, in addition to, you know, some of the more uh, beneficial elements to, to traveling as, as a black woman. Um, we also explore nationalities and the folks that we spoke to, you know, holding an American passport gave them more privilege than not holding an American passport in certain places and spaces. So we were trying and 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 also being um, black and queer or being black and disabled, we were able to really highlight that it's it's really complex and there aren't easy solutions. There aren't easy, you know, narratives even that come through it. Um, there are many aspects of this intersectional, as we call it, a roadmap. Um, and it's, there's, it's, it's, it's challenging. And so how do we really work with that and not against it to better highlight and amplify not only these stories of struggle, uh, but also these stories of joy. Yeah. Um, and and the joyous components of traveling as a black person with various identities. That's lovely. And I was really interested in reading the article about the roadmap, uh, especially now where you see a lot of black uh, influencers or travel influencers rather, you know, sharing their stories, even forming different uh, subgroups or um, subcultures within tourism and travel. And I, I, I identified social media in your article where you talked about it being a meeting space to share key insights on, you know, where are the safest places to travel for um, for Blacks and so forth. Were there anything that came out of that, um, especially the fact that you collaborated with industry in Evita and, and her business that really kind of translated into public offering as a resource um, in, in a practical sense? Yeah, you know, We've been talking and discussing this uh, specifically around the, the safety components around representation. And when, you know, we recently with EB worked um, with a destination marketing organization in the Southeast. And although they're trying to really work to improve their inclusivity and representation specifically around their marketing promotional or promotions, 
the areas surrounding this specific city are not as hospitable or welcoming to black or folks of color. And so, you know, with that, it's it's a challenge, you know. And so what Evie has done, I mean, she's really the the founder of the black travel movement. Mm-hmm. And that started with a private Facebook group and folks were sharing, you know, places. It was essentially the the green book, but for Facebook. Yeah. And sharing experiences as to where they felt welcomed or safe or et cetera. And so this has really moved into the social media sphere beyond Facebook and beyond these private groups and towards in terms of Instagram um, or TikTok. But we're seeing more social media influencers that are also trying to curate realistic and authentic experiences and not just something that is um, for the gram. And I think that's really important because although places like the, the city that we were focusing on the Southeast, although they're trying to work towards their inclusivity and representation by promoting or placing, let's say for instance, a, a black uh, queer man on, on their cover, it may not be safe for black queer folks to visit this place. Mm-hmm. So they are essentially, you know, sharing or promoting a place that may not be safe. And so that's something that we've been really trying to dive deeper into, you know, the 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 representation versus the safety aspect of are we giving a false expectation to these places that can actually be putting marginalized or identities of difference in danger. And that is one of the positive elements of of social media influencers, if they are more realistic, like Evie Robinson, Mm. and sharing more of the the not so pretty things when it comes to travel and not just this exceptional curated, you know, post of a of a professional photographer. But uh, so those are the the conversations that we're trying to highlight. And then also the complexities, again, is just it's not a simple solution or or answer. So that's what we've been trying to to really share and and also discuss the 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 power dynamics when it comes to these conversations and how do we really bring folks of all different types of ideologies and identities physically to the table so that Mm -hmm. we're able to say, hey, you know, when I'm traveling in this area, this is not safe for me. And this is a story or the experience that I have. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. Very interesting. I know you mentioned um, in our conversation before recording uh, that your lens that you do research in mostly um, is sort of unpinned by critical theory. Um, Were there any specific challenges in not just navigating the data, but uh, collecting data or engaging with the community? Has there been any difficulties with this? Is that? Yeah, challenges or shortcomings or stuff that you may want to do differently. With critical race theory, it's become the boogeyman here in the United States. Uh, So for many places, my place in the Southeast specifically, we're not supposed to teach on critical race theory or really focus on critical race theory. And that is pretty obvious as to why. And really 
continuing to use the power and privileges that I have, not only as a as a white person, but also as a person, as an academic who's received tenure, how do I help other scholars to, to be able to, to use this type of theoretical framework in their work without being penalized? Mm. So that's something that we're trying to really emphasize here at our university is to protect those who are in those privileged and power positions. But for that, the theoretical framework has, yeah, it's been a challenge. And mm. I think it's pretty telling as to why, because again, it's it's nothing that uh, we are, it's essentially the history of this country. And yeah. um, to, to, to give a romanticized version of that is, is not, is not accurate. It's not truthful. And so we're, what we're trying to do is bring in these counter narratives, which falls under critical race theory, to highlight more of stories and experiences that aren't typically shared in the the, the main landscape, if you will. Uh, so yeah, that's that's been a challenge more recently um, with critical race theory specifically. And, but it's not something that we're gonna shy away from continuing to do. It's important. Yes, and that's true. And just for context for the listeners, Stephanie uh, obviously um, is from Tennessee, so she's speaking on the United States political landscape at the moment. So based on that, because I was going to ask, you know, what are some of those, I guess, myths or underlying elements that you as a researcher probably tend to encounter? I know from my background, I'm doing a lot of research on Indigenous tourism. I had a lot of similar um, challenges, even with the the actual participants, where sometimes you would have to offer, you know, a space for healing and, you know, sort of kind of grounding before you you kind of explore a bit deeper. Um, so it's really interesting that you you shared the actual reality of, of us researchers um, for people out there. So based on the next question, and, and feel free um, to expand on as well, much I, different... If you don't mind, I, I would like to pause you there because you've yeah. raised up some really powerful mm-hmm. uh, convert, um, notes. And mm-hmm. one thing in specific, in particular that we've been trying to, to dive deeper into are these methodologies. Mm-hmm. And when we think of, <laughs> when we think of power and privilege and a specifically a, a colonized version of it, how we as the academy value certain methodologies, it's, it's tends, it primarily falls under quantitative research, right? The statistics, the structural equation modeling, and, and, and it's not to put any of that down, but I've been and I, I've identified as a qualitative research scholar for forever, and and within the past couple of years started to really critique qualitative research, and because we're trying to still prove our worth yeah. to the academy, and this completely takes away the power of indigenous culture and indigenous methodologies where it's around oral history and storytelling and embodiment. And so how do we as academics ensure that this is a value, one, and two, 
um, ensuring that it's not just being produced to publish an article um, and then get to tenure. It's it's the system in which we operate under that needs to be disrupted. And so how do we do that? Uh, we continue to really push forward these different methodologies that highlight more of our embodied work. And that's something that we, we um, shared with uh, Dr. Stephanie Tolliver and her work and around uh, storytelling and uh, Afrofuturism as well. And so bringing more of the joy into our stories um, and centering you know, what the future can potentially look like. But I, I, I paused you because it's it's something that I've been noodling on for, for quite some time in terms of the the systems of academia and how it really we we need and that's what in terms of the we can't return to normal that article we need to really disrupt these systems because we're continuing to perpetuate very toxic landscapes and then also producing scholars with their graduate students who um, are, are not able to really get into the, the critical and the critique of, of what we're doing as academics. Yes, that is interesting. And that was actually the question I was going to ask okay, <laughs> um, specifically on, you know, what wise words do you have for these early career researchers, PG students? As I mentioned, I just came from a conference at the University of Surrey. And all of these conversations were being had, um, but how do we then sort of inform the, the younger or the, the next generation of researchers coming up to sort of shift um, the way we, we actually do um, research and the why behind why we do research? Any wise words for ECAs? Yeah, that is a, a great question and <laughs> something that within my department is, is a very, um, uh, we don't agree on, let's put it that way, right? Our epistemological views are, are, are not aligned and that's a challenge. And so what I continue to do is try to push back and cause that good trouble as John Lewis shared. And how do we help to create either classes or courses like around creative analytic practices or creative and visual methodologies that can really help disrupt some of these paradigms, one. And two, what I just share with my students is I, I really just keep it real and talk about the, the politics of higher education, talk about the politics of journal publishing and try and disrupt it from a, a, a bylaw level as well, where we're undergoing as a department our by, uh, looking into our bylaws. And so how do you start to push for going beyond publications in quote unquote top tier journals? And, and how do we help to disseminate that work beyond our publishing like podcasts like you have here? With, within popular media press, we published in a far media and Condé Nast Traveler. And how do we start to get our work out there to more audiences that are, it's beyond the paywall of, of publishing. And, and research is, is, is really important and it's essential, but it also needs to be critiqued from the reviewer level 
and the editor level. And as reviewers, you know, we don't we don't get paid to do this, and neither do editors, and we don't get paid to to publish either. Mm. Technically, comes under um, what we do as as faculty, but there's a lot of the conversations that I really feel that are are happening right now, and we're seeing younger generations that are essentially swallowing the red pill and saying, what the hell, you know, this isn't, this isn't okay. Um, and how do we push back? And so I would encourage us to continue holding space for that dialogue and finding people who have your same value system and together to really create and disrupt these systems of oppression. Yeah, and I think that's very important, especially, you know, coming from a geographical perspective, you know, we have the Asia um, community, uh, obviously the UK, Europe and Americas and so forth. And most people obviously are taught a certain way or they came from an educational system that is sort of um, made up um, based on specific research paradigms. Mm -hmm. So it's very interesting that you acknowledge that. I just want to give you space as well to just share any other work that you may be doing around um, tourism geography research, any research in the pipeline, any scholars that you're interested in collaborating with or anything that you're cooking at the moment? (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the moment I am resting because rest rest is resistance. That's a, a book that I recently read, which I cannot remember the author, so please give her her shout out if you could look that up because I'm blanking at the moment. Uh, but I would encourage us as as students, as scholars, to rest <laughs> and or literally get out of your office sure, and go for a walk if you're able to have spend some time with friends or family if you're able to. But I feel like our academy is the again it's the system in which we operate mm. here and how do we individually um disrupt that and for me personally right now i'm i'm resting um i'm resting <laughs> and resting and resisting yeah. <laughs> yes i love that and what is trisha hersey so mm-hmm. yes lovely book and yeah. I, I guess even as we speak about it um, early career academics, that's probably something that we could start looking at from now yeah. rather than suffering from burnout later on. Yeah. And, you know, I am chairing two dissertations and I shared with both of my my, my graduate students, I'm like, this is the summer and I, I'm requiring you to, <laughs> this is not, not yes, <laughs> this, this is not a thought or like maybe, no, you, you need to rest. You need to rest. Mm-hmm. And however that rest looks like for you, but that also comes from us, again, the power, you know, components, it comes from us who are or faculty or folks who are in that power, quote unquote, power position. We need, we need, to, we need time off. And um, this is, there's research behind sharing how leisure and travel really helps to reset us as, as humans. So I encourage us to, to go more inward as, as human beings um, and find the human in humanities. And, but, so yeah, that's that, but also I am <laughs> collaborating <laughs> with some other incredible scholars like uh, Carla Bollock and Brandon Patterson and Kai Shan Lee. And we're working on 
exactly that, you know, writing about slowing down and what what does that feel like? Um, So we've been slow in the process, but that's part of our whole (laughs) ideology. (laughs) But um, learning is just to slow, slow it down. It doesn't need to be that that fast because that falls under capitalism and white supremacy and the patriarchy. So how do we disrupt that? Slow down and rest. So that's what we're trying to to really uh, put out there. That's amazing. So in the spirit of tourism geographies, we like to obviously make those connections. And so interestingly, we normally would ask one for you to leave a question for our next interviewer. Um, But you were left a question by Max Halloran from the University of Melbourne. And his question to you is, what does responsible vacation look like? When you think about having a responsible vacation, um, I think he was sort of jostling with what does that actually mean? And he would like you to to share your insights on that. Yeah, I love that. So (laughs) it comes from the intention. So what's your intention behind actually traveling or planning this vacation? I think is the, the, the first place that you can focus on. And then second, what I encourage uh, folks to do is not go to the quote unquote popular places, find places that are off the beaten path, find places that um, you can move slower in uh, and really embrace the community. Um, if you are wanting to dabble into the Airbnb landscape, uh, you know, there's a lot of complexities around Airbnb, but um, if you, what it was intended to do is essentially be like a bed and breakfast. So find those places that are highlighting that where the host is there uh, and you're able to um, be part of that community in a responsible way Uh, and or find uh, hotels or uh, boutique. I always love boutique inns or bed and breakfasts that are owned and operated by a marginalized identity, um, whether that be a queer person, black person, disabled person, et cetera, uh, so that your money is, is physically going to supporting these communities. And also seek out, again, the restaurants, the cuisine, the places to shop that or that are local and that are actually part of the community. What I like to do is is ask locals where are some non-touristy areas in which I can go to. Um, and yeah, just, just slow down. You don't have to be doing 20,000 things in one day unless that's you know your, your speed. But I would encourage us to take a book or go to a coffee shop for a couple hours and just explore the, the people that are around you. And um, yeah, just don't I know it sounds really simple, but don't be rude. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> and especially yeah. to the folks who are in the, if you are flying in the airline industry, we were talking about this before we we started to record. It's a, it's, it's pretty mess, messy. Yeah. And, and that goes within the systems in which we operate under, but the folks there, they're, they're trying their best. So just try and have some empathy and patience when it comes to the chaos, when it comes to physically traveling. And uh, yeah, so that would be my my responsible traveling advice. <laughs> Your top tips. I love that. And I feel like even coming from the Caribbean, you know, there's a tendency for people to even haggle 
to mm -hmm. locals. So yeah. yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned to be respectful as well. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. So before we end off, do you have a question that you would like to leave for the next? Um... You know, I'm thinking. I first of all, I love this. I love the the mm -hmm. teaser. What are you doing to? Uh, let's see, maybe I want something around rest, you know, like how are, <laughs> how are you disrupting the system or, or how are you like, what are you in, in what ways are you resting as resistance? Maybe that could be, I don't know if that's too heady, but, um, no, it's it, lovely. Okay. All right, cool. <laughs> I love that. And I, I, th I honestly think it's a theme happening. Um, definitely a theme that's been going around the past few conferences I've been to, you know, this coming back, but coming back in, you know, sort of revitalized way, um, kind of touching on that human flourishing element as well. So it's lovely. And it was really beautiful speaking to you, Stephanie. And I wish you all the best. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you. And just uh, if anyone wants more information, you can go to tourismreset.com. Thank you for sharing that. And I will probably share that information in the podcast notes as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. See you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to our guests and thank you, our dear listeners, for joining us on this episode of the Tourism Geographies podcast. We look forward to you tuning into the next episode. I am a fear holder. Bye for now.